when your customer starts to vibrate and hesitate and backpedal and waffle and waver and you know you feel like that deal slipping through your fingers just put your status quo FOMO hammer back for a moment and just dig a little bit deeper to find out what's really going on. Because if you misread the situation, the reason those techniques backfire is you're using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid, but they're not afraid of what you think they're afraid of. They're not afraid of missing out. They're afraid of messing up. All right. Today on the Dreamers and Doers podcast series here at Ariaka, we have an amazing guest for you. We're talking about a renowned sales expert talking about a world-class New York Times best-selling author. And likely you've attended one of his trainings or you've read one of his amazing books. Today, we're talking about Matt Dixon, the author of The Challenger Sale, Challenger Customer, and his brand new book, The Jolt Effect. All right, well, Matt, welcome to the Ariaka Dreamers and Doers podcast series. You hear the title. It's all about what you're dreaming about, what you're doing. So Matt, my man, I can't wait to talk to you today. What are you dreaming about and what are you doing to make successful salespeople more relevant in today's market and help them get these customers to say the magic words, yes. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I think what I dream about is getting a little bit more sleep. <laughs> so I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gotten a lot over the past, you know, it feels like the last few months have been a whirlwind. I know we'll talk about all this stuff, but Challenger Sale came out in 2011. Uh, we spent a long time out on the road and, and telling that story and, and spreading that uh, research around. Then we wrote a book called The Challenger Customer in 2015. And now Jolt Effect, it's been a few years. So we're kind of getting, getting back on the horse and, uh, you know, getting out to the going to visit sales teams, doing a lot of sales kickoffs, national sales meetings, global sales meetings, leadership retreats, things like that. So it's been really fun. And of course, doing a, doing a lot of podcasts like this one. So I'm uh, very excited about the conversation. I guess that's not super inspiring is that I, I'm dreaming about having more. <laughs> but you know what I do? I, I do, you know, we'll tell you, we'll talk more about this. I think I contrast this with the nightmare I think most salespeople are having right now, which is customers pushing off big decisions, kicking the can down the road, you know, they're super hesitant. For sure. I think the dream is that that salespeople will now with this new research understand why that's happening and then more importantly what they can do about it to get those customers to move forward and to your point, not just say yes, but actually sign the agreement and buy the solution. I love it. That's what it's all about. I can't wait to jump into that. It's so relevant in my world, right? When you talk about these major transformational moments that are occurring, yeah, you know, a lot of these CIOs made a decision to buy through big telco companies because, you know, the old saying, you never get fired by selecting XYZ telcos. So I can't wait to jump into that. Before we go there, let's talk about, let's talk about some of your history. So back pre-2011, you came up with this idea around challenger sale, which has been just wildly impactful to our entire industry. I know for me personally, I've been through the training numerous times. I use the strategies. It's been great. So talk to me about the, the genesis around the Challenger sale. Like, Where did you come up with that? And what ultimately inspired you to write that book? That was our first book. And I think it was... Um... It was this weird moment where, so we, at the time I was working with my co-author, Brent Adamson, and our research team, we were all working at a company called CEB, which is now part of Gartner Group. They were acquired by Gartner in 2017. I think all, everyone, everyone uh, you know, listening or watching knows Gartner very well, big global research company. And we were working in the part of the business that was serving sales leaders. So I think we worked with about 700 heads of sales. 
and I think it was it was this interesting time. It was um it was 2008. So this is we rewind the um, the clock uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, it feels like a tough environment now. But if for anybody who was selling back then, I mean, that was just a terrible time to be selling anything, right? Oh, terrible, terrible. I mean, the whole world was coming to an end. The the depths of the financial crisis, and we were so we were running a research team, and our our job was to provide research and insight to these 700 heads of sales who are our client, all B2, clients, all B2B heads of sales from industries and companies around the world, including many in your own industry, uh, Craig, in, the, in tech. And so we went out to these sales leaders and, and it was a really tough time, obviously. And we said, hey, what what can we help with? What do you need insight on? And the, the ask that came back from our clients was, look, this is a bloodbath out there. I mean, it's a terrible environment to be selling anything. But there's still a handful of my sellers who are crushing their number and they're doing it in the worst environment I've ever seen. What is it that those people are doing differently and how can I kind of put that in a bottle and export it to everyone else, right? And so that was the genesis of the Challenger uh, study. We went out there, We I think we were talking about this before we uh, started recording today, that we collected data originally on 6,000 B2B salespeople. That data set has now grown to almost a quarter million around the world. Uh, I think your listeners probably know the story that we found all salespeople fall into one of five different profiles. And the kicker was that most heads of sales, and I think most salespeople as well, would have bet the farm on the relationship builder salesperson, right? The, the person who comes in really great at understanding the client's business, diagnosing the customer's needs, and then prescribing a solution that meets those needs. You know, they sit on the customer side of the table, try to find out what's keeping that customer up at night and address those concerns and those needs. What we found is that those people actually finished dead last when you look at high performers. And the winner was this challenger profile. And the difference between the challenger and the relationship builder was that the challenger is less focused on finding out what's keeping the customer up at night and more focused on showing the customer what should be keeping them up at night. And I think what they realized was something interesting had happened over the past 20, 30 years in professional sales, which is like the internet happened. And once, once information became pretty abundant for our customers, they started to box us out. They started to do a lot of research on our website. Those of our competitors, you know, that engage third-party purchasing consultants or LinkedIn networks, you name it, and force then kind of create a shortlist and force vendors to compete on price because they kind of assume, I, I know what I need. I know how you compare to your competitors. Now, who's going to sell it to me for the lowest amount of money possible? And that puts salespeople in a really tough spot. So these challengers had realized in a world where customers can learn on their own and they want to box you out and they want to force you, put you in a box, force you to compete on price, what you need to do is bring them the thing that they couldn't learn on their own. What's the thing that you and your company knows about solving X, Y, or Z business problem that the customer needs to know? And so that that was really kind of the, I think, the best characterization of that approach. But it was an interesting time for us, at least, because, again, it was our first book. And I think it, it ruffled a lot of feathers out there. I think it caused a lot of people to kind of scratch their heads and, and do a double take or a reassessment of their own sales approach. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who hated it because... It was like, here, here are a couple of researchers who came along who are not salespeople, but brought research methods to bear to answer some of these big problems in sales. And um, in some respects, the answers we came up with were a little bit of a emperor has no clothes moment for I think a lot of the people were out there saying like, it's all about relationships, it's all about diagnosing customer needs, yeah. find out what's keeping your customer up at night. And we're like, well, not so fast. That's not what the best people are doing anymore. And so I think it created this kind of cognitive dissonance in the market, which got us, I think, a lot of um, acclaim, but also a lot of notoriety, you know, you know, uh, infamy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, then markets have noticed, right? I mean, people really started to adopt a lot of the strategies in there and really started to, to push more towards that challenger model. 
I loved it. I loved the, the whole notion of the book, the concept. I thought it was excellent. I went through the training many, many times. And so congratulations on all the success you had with Challenger Sale. And I'm Thank you. really looking forward to talking to you today around the Jolt Effect. And so let's talk about that. Late last year, you bring a new book to market called The Jolt Effect. And I think this is such a relevant topic. It's all centered around why customers choose not to move forward, right? Why do they stay in the status quo? And ultimately, what is holding them back from actually saying yes and signing contracts and, and moving forward with, with opportunities? So talk to me about that. Like, what's the whole premise around the Joel effect? Yeah, absolutely. So we we had this uh, interesting, you remember back in March, 2020, which is I think a time of all of our lives that we, we remember with very mixed emotions. Um, it was an interesting time in sales because it, it marked the point where sales that had, I think even before the pandemic had been on a slow march to becoming more virtual. So more of our sales calls happening on Zoom and Teams and other platforms, but still like the really important meetings still happen in the client's office. You know, they still happen face to face or on the trade show floor or what have you. In March of 2020, that all ended. Just like remote work, everyone was remote, yeah. uh, in, in all sales, 100% virtual. So we thought this was a once in a lifetime, potentially, um, hopefully once in a lifetime opportunity to study sales in a unique way. So we recruited several dozen companies to a large global study. Uh, we collected uh, two and a half million recorded sales calls and we used machine learning to study those at scale. We all told we our predictive model that we built had 8,300 variables in it. And the two questions we were focused on as a research team were one, what causes customers to go through an entire sales process eat up a lot of your time, that of your team and your supporting crew on your side, not to say anything of the customer's own time and, and that of their team and their organization to evaluate a solution and then do nothing. Uh, what possesses people to do stuff like that? Because it seems like an irrational thing to do, to spend a lot of time on, on something where you ultimately sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Sure. And then the, the more important question was, what are the best salespeople do to avoid that? So I, I think the punchline here and then we can get into maybe some more of the details of, of what we found. But, you know, the conventional, well, I should say up front, what, what we found, and this is a data point we pulled spring of last year, that anywhere between 40 and 60% of a salesperson's qualified pipeline will ultimately be lost to customers who do nothing. And now I will say some of those customers will tell you, hey, you know what, Craig, now's not the right time. We're keeping our powder dry. Times are tough. Budget, a lot of budget scrutiny. We're going to delay this decision. Let's pick it up next quarter or next year. But a lot of times what ends up happening is the customer disengages, but they don't tell us they're disengaging. So exactly. yeah, we get ghosted. We get ghosted. <laughs> you get ghosted. That's right. You get ghosted. The customer goes radio silent. You find yourself floating your emails to the top of their inbox a lot and trying to stay stay on the radar screen, right? It, it's I, I jokingly tell people it reminds me of my dating life in college where the <laughs> relationship was over, but it took me like two months to figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, and eventually salespeople are the best ones will put that market as closed loss and move on to the next opportunity, if not, if they haven't done so already. But most salespeople, they need to be told by their manager, you know, this is going nowhere. You got to spend your time on another opportunity and they market as closed loss, no decision, but they never understand why. Now, I think what's interesting is in sales, the conventional wisdom has always been that when the customer hesitates and gets cold feet, especially if they said they want to buy from you, they said the status quo stinks, they said you, you know, solving this problem is a big priority for their business, and you're the vendor they want to work with, and then they get cold feet, well, it must be because you didn't really put the status quo to bed. And so salespeople have been told, like, look, that is your only enemy in sales, is the customer status quo. 
And so we tell salespeople to go back and, and hammer the status quo. In sales conversations, this um, took three different uh, shapes. The first attempt is almost always uh, to try to reconvince the customer of all the benefits. Like, let me show you the feeds yeah. and speeds. Let me show you the proof points, the success stories. Like, let me put you on the phone with another reference customer. Like, how could you afford to pass up on the amazingness that is our product, right? The second attempt is usually, if that's the positive one, the second one's kind of dark and negative, which is the FUD approach, which is try to create that burning platform, make the customer squirm a bit. Hey, you know, we're working with all your competitors and they're still on those terrible legacy platforms and your competitor, your, your competitors, you're on this legacy platform, they're on our solution, they're experiencing tremendous benefits and you're going to be left in the dust. Like these problems are not going to solve themselves. So try to make the customer squirm a bit. And then the third attempt we almost always see is the temp percent discount that's only good this month, you know, and, uh, you know, price goes up next month. Now, yeah. so I characterize those all, all as FOMO tactics, right? You're going to miss out on the benefits. You're going to miss out on solving this bad status quo you've been complaining about to me, or you're just going to miss out on this discount I'm offering you right now. The fact that salespeople do that all the time was not surprising because it's exactly what they've been taught to do. But what did surprise us was that those techniques backfire way more often than they work out. There was an 84% probability that dialing up the FOMO with a customer who's stated their intent to move forward with you and is sold on the value proposition, sold on solving this problem, sold on this being you know, the status quo not being good enough. And they say, Craig, we're ready to move forward. We want to talk to you. This is a big priority. Let's go. And then they disengage and get cold feet. When you dial up the FOMO with that customer, it increases the odds the deal will be lost to no decision. And so it, it was a bit of a head scratcher to us. We tried to make the finding go away. We told our data science team there must be something wrong with the, you know, the, the model, go check the math. They said, no, it's, this is accurate. And we fed more data into the model, expecting it, the problem to kind of go away, get solved by a larger sample. It actually got worse, not better. So we decided we need to figure out what's going on here. So we dug into the data and what we found was really surprising. It turns out a no decision loss is driven by two different things. The one is the one that salespeople all recognize, which is the customer who prefers their status quo. That means they think what they're doing today is good enough. That's, good. That's right. They believe what they're doing today is good enough. They don't believe your solution is a better enough alternative. It's not a good enough reason to change. Or they don't believe it's a priority. Or maybe they don't see the difference between you and your competitor, right? For those customers, that they are suffering from status quo bias, and they're stuck in their ways. And that is a problem of indifference. But there's a second problem, which is not indifference, it's indecision. And indecision is rooted in the customer's fear of failure. Now, this is, uh, it turns out, there's two big surprises here. One is a no decision loss is driven by two different things, status quo preference and then fear of failure. And here's the rub is that it's fear of failure that's actually more, no accounts for more no decision losses than the status quo. And that was the big aha moment for you, right? I think as I learned, because right. everybody had it flipped. People thought the status quo was more prevalent, right? For sure. It, it not even flipped. I, I think they didn't even know there was another reason. They didn't even know. Yeah. Right. It was just, it was the only, like they, salespeople have gone through life with blinders on thinking the only enemy is a status quo. And now they realize there's two enemies. And the one that I've been taught is the, bi is the only one is not A, not the only one and B, not the biggest one. So and that's not to say solving for the status quo bias is unimportant. We can talk more about that. It's super important. Like you're never going to get to fear of failure and indecision if you don't solve for indifference first. So you got to do that. You have to do the challenger thing. But what we also learned in the research is that it's not enough. And there's a lot of social science behind this that it's what's called, we talked about this before the recording, it's called the omission bias. That, you know, if you think about two different types of loss, and we all know people hate to lose and they hate to lose more than they like to win. And that is true. We, we know that at sales. That's why we dangle the 10% discounts only good this month because we know nobody wants to pay more next month, right? Yeah. And it, it can be a powerful motivator. But 
What I think salespeople don't fully appreciate is there's two types of loss that customers think about. On the one hand is an error of omission, which is when they experience a loss by sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing. The other is an error of commission, which is when they experience a loss because they did something. They made a decision, they chose your solution, and it didn't pan out. And the loss that they experience, their company experiences, is directly tied to the decision you made. You're, you're on the hook. And they're afraid of causing harm, right? I mean, that's what it boils down to. They're creating this harm that could be created through their decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you actually look at these two things in the human mind, errors of commission weigh much heavier on people's conscience and their mindset when it comes to making decisions. The shorthand for salespeople is the customer cares a lot less about the FOMO, the fear of mess- missing out. They care a lot more about the FOMU, which is the fear of messing up. And that was the big takeaway. And it's like, look, you've got to solve for indifference. You've got to convince the customer that the status quo stinks. You've got to convince them you're the vendor to move forward. You've got to convince them as a priority. But what best salespeople have realized is that once you do that, then they start worrying about other stuff. And what they start worrying about specifically is, have I chosen the right configuration? You put a lot in front of me. Have I made the right decision about what's nice to have, what's neat to have? Even if I want to work with you, what is the best way to work with you? Two, have I done enough research? Or am I going to be surprised after the fact? And there's some new information that I should have discovered during my due diligence phase comes to light after the contract is signed, which maybe doesn't make the purchase decision seem like such a great idea after all. And then the third big fear of failure is I may not see the benefits that you're projecting. Like, I believe you. I know you guys do great work. I know your reference customers love you. I know Gartner loves you. You guys top of the magic quadrant, all this stuff. But our company can't have nice things. We screw this stuff up all the time. Like there's no way we're gonna, we're gonna mess this up. And if we mess this up, it's on me because I'm the one whose name is on the proposal that went in front of the CFO to get buy-in to move forward and do this. So if I were to sum it up, I'd say, look, in, in general, and especially in this environment, your customers care a heck of a lot less than about the 10% discount you're offering them right now. They care a lot more about losing their job. Like that is what they're really worried about. So you've got to solve for the status quo, then you've got to solve for indecision. You got to instill the confidence as a customer's making a great decision. They've done plenty of research. They're working with a trusted advisor and you've got their back. They're going to look like a hero, not like a fool. Yeah. So that's interesting. So and a lot of that, you know, you look at what we can control, right? And so one of the things you talk about is creating too many options, right? Yeah. We sometimes confuse customers. We give them too many options and then they kind of get this, you know, decision paralysis, right? Because they're afraid to make that decision. And I think that's really centered around the JOLT effect, right? And the, the, the acronym of JOLT. So talk to me about JOLT. What does JOLT mean specifically? Yeah, so JOLT is an acronym. As you said, it stands for four behaviors. Judging the level of indecision, offering your recommendation, limiting the exploration, then taking risk off the table. And we like it because it helps people remember it, but it's also, um, it speaks to what's happening. Because remember, your customer is stuck they're paralyzed with the fear of failure. They're indecisive and they're they're stuck between I want this and I bought this. And we got to help them, you know, bridge the gap and get them across the finish line. Uh, and the way we need to do that is to jolt them into action. So, you know, these are the four behaviors. And what's so interesting about it is we identified these through the research. So challenges are the same way. I always tell people, look, we didn't invent this. This is something the best salespeople in the world figured out on their own. We just gave terminology to it and told the story around it with data. And the same is true with Jolt. The best salespeople in the world have figured out that beating the customer status quo is only half the battle. The other half is instilling the confidence that they're not going to be left holding the bag here and they're going to look like heroes, not like fools. And so I've got to shift from being just a salesperson who beats up the status quo to being a buyer's agent who's there right in lockstep with my customer. I got their back and they're going to look, they're going to feel great about this decision and look great as a result of it. 
And so the jolt effect is these four behaviors that, that high performers have figured out. Again, they never read a sales book about it. They were never trained on it or coached to go do it, but they figured out that there's more to success being successful as a salesperson, especially when it comes to avoiding no decision losses. So they kind of figured out this playbook on their own. I love that. I mean, so much good information. We all face this challenge every single day in these large opportunities. Yeah. So what's the market reaction to the whole premise around Joel? Like, what's the feedback you're getting around the book? It's been really great. I, I think it's a happy coincidence, maybe not a happy coincidence that the economy is kind of on the skids, but uh, not happy for anybody. But, yeah. but for guys who wrote a book on like overcoming indecision, it turns out like that was a very timely topic. I do think, though, in some respects, I think while this is a really acute problem right now, I don't see this problem going away. Because if we go back and think about the three things that cause customers, customers get worried about a lot of things, but the three big ones they get really worried about that keep them from moving forward are, have I navigated the sea of options and bells and whistles in the right way? Have I made the right decisions around what's in and what's out? Have I, have I, made, have I navigated the choice overload problem successfully? Second one, have I done enough research? You know, or am I going to be surprised after the decision is made and I'm going to look bad because I was running the buying committee, I was on the hook to do the due diligence, leave no stone unturned. And it turns out I didn't quite do my job and we were surprised in a bad way. And the third one is uh, expectations overload. We don't think we're going to get what we're paying for. And yeah, it's a 10x ROI we're projecting in the business case. But what if it comes in at eight or nine? In a normal day, that'd be fine. But if it's built around 10, I'm going to get hauled into the CFO's office. I'm going to have some explaining to do, right? So those are the three things that keep customers from moving forward. Now, if we think about those things, like choice overload. Every vendor out there is putting more options in front of their customers, more integrations, more roadmap items, more bells and whistles. Information overload. There's more information about every market today than there was yesterday. And there'll be more tomorrow than there is today. There's no way customers can consume it all, which increases the odds they'll get, they'll suffer from analysis paralysis. And then outcome uncertainty, this idea of expectations overload. Every customer we're talking to, every vendor, is trying to go from selling simple products on a transactional basis to selling multi-year deals, higher sticker solutions, right? That are really embedded in the customer's organization. Good business for the vendor. But the problem is like when we're all selling transformation, transformation's cool, but it gets people a little bit nervous. Like what if we don't see the transformative results, right? For sure. So those things I think are like genies we can't put back in the bottle. So I think even after the economy, you know, the dust settles on the economy and things, we get back into the good times and it's like, the economy, the lights are green on the economy, we're ready to go. I think this problem of no decision is actually getting worse on a secular basis. We're seeing a momentary spike in no decision losses, but I don't think they're going away unless we do something about it. Such good information. So looking at the people that are probably listening to this podcast, it's going to be a lot of people like myself that are in the technology arena, you know, selling digital transformation. Sure. It's the whole channel community, right? That are trust advisors, meeting with clients, really pushing them beyond these status quos. What advice would you give to the channel community out there on like, how can they start to leverage some of this information today to improve their close ratios? Like what, what advice would you give them? I'll give a couple kind of quick hit, like go do this stuff. After you listen to the show, go, go do this on your next opportunity. The first thing, I think the most important thing is now that we know that fear of failure is such a big deal, when your customer starts to vibrate and hesitate and backpedal and waffle and waver and you know you feel like that deal's slipping through your fingers, just put your status quo FOMO hammer back for a moment and just dig a little bit deeper to find out what's really going on. Because if you misread the situation, the reason those techniques backfire is you're using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid. 
but they're not afraid of what you think they're afraid of. They're not afraid of missing out. They're afraid of messing up. And so if you could diagnose that and just, just hit the pause button and try to dig a little bit deeper and why is the customer hesitating? Why was this thing that felt like it was, a, it was this close to being done now feels like we're really far from the finish line. What's going on here? You're going to do yourself a huge favor as a salesperson. So that's, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, when we talk about, you mentioned this before, Craig, but you talk about those options. The last thing I'm going to tell anybody here is do the Henry Ford thing. Like you can have any color car you want as long as it's black, right? That's not the recipe. Our customers love options. It, options are really great on your website. They're great on the trade at the trade show booth. They're, they're awesome in the early stages of the sale. Let a thousand flowers blooms paint the art of the possible. But in a world where everything looks great, the safest choice is to choose nothing and sit on the sidelines. So you've got to guide your customer to a decision. And the way you do that is you go from lots of options down to a narrower choice set, and then you recommend one. And what happens in that moment is you shift the burden of making a bad choice from the customer's shoulders to a little bit on your shoulders too. Because if you're endorsing this decision, it doesn't work out. Well, the customer doesn't feel like they're all on the hook for it. Um, it's something called the delegation effect. So think about this as, a, as you know, if you're in the channel, if you're um, if salesperson out there engaging with customers, we love our options. But remember, in a world of endless options, customers suffer from choice overload. They don't want to choose the wrong option. So guide them to the decision. We know deep down what's the best configuration for you. So let's guide the customer there and instill the confidence that, you know what? You can pass on this stuff. It's nice to have. This is the need to have. This is what you should go do. Limiting the expiration. There's a lot to this one. How do we get the customer to stop trying to be an expert and trust us as an expert? Here's the one piece of advice I'd give you is, the reason customers do endless research is rooted in a problem called the agency dilemma, which is you know more about the solution than they do. You know what doesn't work and you know what does work. You know the customers who love you and the customers who hate you. <laughs> you know you know the stuff that's that's totally industrial strength and you know the stuff that's quite not, not quite ready for prime time. And the question is, and the reason customers do endless research is they believe that you are incentivized not to share any of that with them. Your job is to sell them right? And so you're not going to admit that stuff doesn't work. You're going to try to sell them as much as possible, as quickly as possible. So it sets up a bit of a cat and mouse game where the customer's trying to learn as much as they can, because what they're really trying to do is figure out what you're not sharing with them. And so what we need to do is break down that agency dilemma and build a bank of goodwill that we can later cash in. And the way we do that is we tell the customer specifically what they shouldn't buy, even of the things that we sell. I know we, we're very proud of that solution. We, you know what? I know you're looking at the premium version. I think the basic version is going to be just fine. You know what? I know you want to roll this out enterprise-wide. I might suggest we start a bit smaller, less pressure on you, easier to get approval on that, and let's learn how to work together, experience some success. We can expand from there. Or even think about this. We found examples of salespeople telling customers, look, I'd love to sell this to you. Nothing would make me happier. Make my year. Add you to our logo sheet. It'd be great. But based on what you're looking for in the use case, actually, I got to tell you, our competitors are actually a lot better at that than we are. We've chosen to invest our dollars elsewhere. When you do that stuff, it teaches the customer that your goal is not to oversell them and hide the ball. Your goal is to get them to a great decision. And that earns you the right to tell the customer, I don't think you need, Craig, I don't think you need a fifth reference call. I don't think you're going to learn anything from that call that you haven't already learned. What's really going on here? Let's have a frank and honest conversation because at the end of the day, I just want you to make the right decision for you and for your team and for your company, whether that's buying from us or buying from a competitor or just not buying anything, right? But let's get to that decision together and help, let me help you make that decision. The last one, taking risk off the table. There's a lot of techniques we can use to de-risk the, the purchase for the customer. The seeds of expectation overload 
are set early on when we miss that or planted early on when we miss that customer expectations. So my piece of advice to salespeople is be really, really careful that you're not letting the customer anchor their themselves on some outlandish, gaudy ROI projections that are maybe based on that case study on your website, which you're very proud of and you stand by. But let's be honest, like, is the customer really going to see a 50x return? Are they really going to see like a million dollar cost savings? Maybe it's better to set the bar a bit lower, which still crosses the threshold with the CFO, still gets a lot of approval and buy-in on this, but sets the customer up for success. In that way, your customer comes into this, not sweating the fact that they're not going to see the benefits, but rather they're excited about all the upside they're going to experience. They know there's a floor that's been set and they're at least going to deliver this. And if they at least do that, they look good. And the chances are they're going to do a lot better than that. They're going to look like a hero. So just be careful about letting customers talk themselves into like ridiculous ROI expectations. Much better to under-promise and over-deliver. Got it. Man, so much so much goodness there you just shared in terms of advice. I mean, just kind of in summary, it sounds like we got to really dig in. It's not the status quo. We got to understand what's really causing them to have fear about making these transformations and really you know, build our strategy around that fear. And the second thing is really control the amount of options. Like sometimes I think people, like you say, they want to give them every single option that's available. And I think that's causing more harm than good, right? It causes delays and causes challenges with those customers to make those decisions. So limit the number of options, streamline it, make the recommendation, right? Make the recommendation on what you think solves the particular problem. Yep, set proper expectations. And, you know, again, take those moments to tell the customer, show the customer that you're on their side. You're not trying to hide, put one over on them. You're here to get them to a great decision. There's lots of opportunities for you to do that across the sale, especially early on. And it gets you kind of on the customer side of the table. Like, look, you know, I know you're looking at that integration. Gotta be honest, it's it's a little bit rocky. <laughs> it's new for us. Our engineering team's working on it. We'll have the kinks worked out in six months. But right now, I don't want you to build your whole business case on that and be disappointed because it doesn't work out of the box. Like, we're working through it. Much better that we plan for it, doing that a little bit down the road. Like, those are great moments for you in terms of building that trust and uh, in that credibility as a salesperson. Love it. Well, awesome work around Joel DeFact. Thanks, Craig. So I got to ask, I mean, what's next? I mean, where are you going next after Joel DeFact? Oh, gosh. So we actually have another study going on right now, which is, um, interestingly, a study of a different segment of sales. We're actually looking at uh, professional services. So we're, we're looking at areas, everything from professional services support around technology purchases all the way down to you know, pure professional services like banking, law, accounting, wealth management, management consulting, where, you know, you're not actually selling a product, you're selling your own expertise. And it's a bit of a different sales motion. So we've got a study going on right now, and it's really designed to understand what do the top rainmakers in professional services firms do differently? How do they build their networks? How do they find those client opportunities? How do they pitch for business? How do they stand out in a crowded landscape? And then how do they earn the right to not just renew, but upsell and cross-sell and grow share of wallet with those clients over time. So again, it's one of those areas in sales that's it's a bit different from selling software and technology because those are, you know, we're selling a solution, we're selling a product. This is really people selling themselves and their own expertise. And it's a, it, it's some things I think are going to be similar to what we found in Challenger and Jolt. I think there's going to be a lot that's actually kind of unique to this segment of the market. So that's going on right now. We're just about to do the first run of the data. We got data on several thousand partners from around the world. Uh, so pretty excited to see what that story holds. 
Man, I can't wait to see that because you're talking to a managed service provider right here and uh, all the things that you uncover are going to be incredibly useful, you know, for us and all the other MSPs out there as we try to really stand out in a very crowded space like you mentioned there. So uh, I can't wait to see that. So in terms of where you're, where you're going to be, so where can people find you, Matt? Are you going to be out and about? Any upcoming conferences they can meet you? Where do they find you on social media? I've been, as I said earlier, I've been doing the, um, it's been good for my frequent flyer balance. <laughs> I don't think it's in, uh, probably not so popular in the family front, but, uh, but I've been spending a lot of time out on the road, um, heading out to California on, uh, you know, in a couple of days to go out to Palo in the Bay area, doing a bunch of sales kickoffs. And I'm, gosh, where am I after that? I think I'm in Vegas after that. So it's been a lot of hop skipping, jumping across the country and around the world doing sales kickoffs. So maybe you'll see me at one of those events. And if not, connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I love connecting with folks who, you know, hear me on a podcast or hear me present somewhere on a webinar just to be connected. But also if you've got a follow-up question, I'd be more than happy to answer it for you. And if you want to learn more about the book, uh, come visit us at jolteffect.com. There's more information about the research there, but there's also some free tools as well that you can download if you've read the book. And, you know, we've got some coaching tools and some opportunity qualification tools that might be useful um, to readers. So check us out there. Awesome. So one question, one last question for you, Matt. I, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. I feel for the salespeople that actually place a sales call into you, like that has to be terrifying, right? Reaching like the renowned sales expert, world class author around sales strategy and methodology. Like, how can someone actually successfully sell you something? So I, you know, it's a great question. What I would say is I, I've got tons of respect for people who actually do sales. I just study it and write about it. I'm a sales anthropologist, not an actual salesperson. So, and so I have a ton of respect for how hard that is. But what I think is is interesting is in the current economy, there was an, and I don't know the exact data point, correct, but there was something that came out, I think it was from HubSpot, where they were tracking the increase in cold outreach that happened across the pandemic. It was on a slow march upward, and then it really spiked like a hockey stick curve up when we hit the pandemic and just, we were all getting like tons of cold outreach and a lot of it was kind of spamming, right? A ton. Irrelevant offers, just tons of that, right? Why on earth would you think I would ever be interested in that product? Exactly, exactly. Like I, what from our website suggests that that's anything we'd have interest in? And please spell my name right, or at least get my name right in those messages. There's a lot of that, right? So the, the data point was that how much that volume had increased, but how low the open rates were and how, how much it was like actually falling on deaf ears for the reasons we just talked about. It's just not personalized, it's not tailored. It doesn't suggest I know anything about your business. So what stands out to me is actually when somebody does takes the time, I just responded to one the other day. Somebody said, hey, I was checking out your company, DCM Insights. I went to the Jolt Effect site. I read the book. You guys are a content creation company. And so here's how we can help. It was a company that specialized in SEO. They said, like, we work with a lot of research firms, book authors like yourself. Here's what we do. Here's a couple examples. I bet you're not, you don't find you have time for X, Y, and Z. And I was like, yeah, we don't. And I clicked on the thing. We scheduled the call and, you know, we might engage with them. But 99.999% of those outreaches I ignore, but it's the ones where somebody's done some homework and it feels like it's, okay, you at least aren't coming in cold and you're not trying to sell me something that I have no business buying. You're, you understand a little bit. It may not be totally on point. Maybe you swung and you missed, but you tried, right? Your bat wasn't sitting on your shoulder. <laughs> so those get my attention. Love it. There you go, everybody. The secret has been unlocked on how to sell Matt Dixon something. 
Um, by the way, Matt, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been awesome having you on here. Same, Craig. Uh, Matt Dixon, everybody. The Joel Effect. Check it out. I highly recommend you read the book. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks, Craig. Great to be with you.